Is Anarchy Relevant for Classical Liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Ian Scoble. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Ian Scoble. Ian is Professor of Philosophy and Coordinator of Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Bridgewater State University. He has frequently lectured and written for the Institute for Humane Studies and the Foundation for Economic Education, and he is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. His main research includes theories of rights, the nature and justification of authority, and virtue ethics. In addition, he writes widely on the intersection of philosophy and popular culture, among other things, co-editing the best-selling The Simpsons and Philosophy. Ian, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on, Ian. So our question today is, is anarchy relevant for classical liberalism? And I think the best way to approach this is to talk about anarchism in and of itself first, and then we can bring in the overall classical liberal, traditional liberal discussion on top of that. So I want to start with one that as, as you probably know, in anarchist circles could go many different directions, but we're going to try our best here. Let me just throw out at you, what do you mean when you say anarchism? Let's start with that. Sure. I mean, it's etymologically, I mean the same sort of thing as you would see in the word monarchism. Someone who advocates monarchism thinks there should be one ruler, right? So we're talking about how many archons should there be, right? So the monarchist thinks mono, one ruler. So parallel, the anarchist is saying zero, there should be no rulers. So I don't think that anarchism should be understood as a rejection of authority generally, a rejection of knowledge, a rejection of any of the sorts of orders that appear in social or natural settings. It's I take a much more limited view of the etymology of the word. It's, it's, it's saying how many rulers, how many archons do you think we should have answer zero, you know, as opposed to a monarchist saying that, the, that there should be one ruler. Um, of course, there's other answers besides zero and one, right? There's all these, you know, rule of the people or some aristocratic subset of people or whatever it is. Um, but just as the monarchist has reduced the number of archons or rulers to one, the anarchist is saying, no, take it back even one more to zero rulers. Um, I don't think it's a claim about um, knowledge or order or authority at all, um, but about rulers. The, um, it's, it's also, I think, important to notice that it's, uh, the etymology also looks like it's you know, atheists, right? There's that same negative making prefix. Right. But atheism is a descriptive claim. It's denying that something or other exists. But the anarchist doesn't deny that states or rulers exist, right? It's, an, it's a normative claim, not a descriptive claim. Um, so while the atheist is saying that there's something or other that you're talking about that I want to say isn't real, what the anarchist is saying is there's something that some people think is a good idea that I think is not a good idea or that I don't recommend or that I think is not justified for some reason. So it's a normative claim. There shouldn't be any archons or rulers. And so by you know, I, the next logical question would be, what do you mean by rulers? Right. And so that's going to be about 
um, not authority generally, right, but imposed authority or coercively imposed um, political, centralized political authority um, that, that arises by force, you know, as opposed to the sorts of natural orders uh, that we might see in, say, um, uh, you know, fashion trends that evolve over time or whatever. And, and to drill into that authority part a little bit more, I think that's really great because I want to get into that. So, you know, as you say, you, you, it, anarchism opposes political authority, but does not oppose authority per se. And and in some of your writing, you explore the idea, for example, one example is that, you know, certain experts may have like, quote, an authority on a certain subject and people should probably listen to that authority in, in certain ways. And that's one example you use. I think Bakunin, anarchist writer, used that as well. So I, like drilling a bit further into that, maybe you can explore that a little more for people unfamiliar with this, that, that sort of part of the thinking. Because as you said, it's not just a rejection of anyone to listen to, for example. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I don't know anything about dental health, right? So if there's something bothering me about my teeth, I go see my dentist and my dentist is something of an authority on teeth. And so, you know, what's the answer to my question? What's the solution to my problem here? My dentist is a good person to ask about that. Same thing with auto maintenance. I don't know anything about auto maintenance. So if there's something wrong with the way the car's driving, I'm going to take it to my mechanic, who is something of an authority on auto maintenance, and he'll say, well, this, that, and the other thing. And I have some good reason to think that these people know what they're talking about and to act on what they say. One of the important differences, and I think even Bakunin mentions this, right, is that they don't force me to do anything, right? right? The dentist will say, I think you ought to do X, or the mechanic will say, I think you ought to do such and such. And it's up to me to decide whether to do that or not. Whether I have um, some good motivation to follow their suggestions is partly a function of, you know, you know do I trust their pronouncements. And of course, people, you know, dishonest auto mechanics get a bad reputation for talking people into repairs that they don't necessarily need. So as far as how do I know how to act, it, it, you know, there's other things besides recognizing the mechanic's epistemological authority about auto maintenance, but also I have to have some trust and, and, and what have you. Um, but in terms of how do I learn things about the world, right? I don't know anything about the Peloponnesian War because I wasn't there, right? But if I want to learn about the Peloponnesian War, I can ask, you know, people whose special area of study that is. I can read books by people who are generally regarded uh, by other historians to be authoritative about the Peloponnesian War. And so if I read those books, then I will learn something about this. Um, and there too, uh, you know, Barry Strauss isn't forcing me to do anything. He's just telling me a story. But also, I have some good reason to think that this is a credible story. And so I think that I've learned something about the Peloponnesian War because I read this book about that war. So, yeah, authority is real. People can know more things than other people. Um, and there's nothing in anarchism that means you have to push back on the idea of, you know, one person knowing more about something than another person. In other words, I guess a way to sum it up is that we wouldn't reject the dentist's authority or topic authority on dentistry, but we would certainly reject their claim to an authority over what's going on in my mouth, for instance, on my dentistry by force. Yes, that's exactly right. And and of course, a related fallacy is thinking that because somebody's an expert on one thing, that they're therefore an expert on something else. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily ask um, 
um, you know, an expert on the Peloponnesian War for dental advice. Absolutely. And and, and carrying on in this thought, you know, now I'm going to, I think we provided a great overview of anarchism and, and what it means at, at a high level. And I want to get into sometimes uh, what people perceive anarchism to be, even if they, they hear something like that. So for, first thing is I want to get into is, do you think people even having said what we've said so far, often think of anarchism in, in too much of a way that lends them to think it's just counter to any political structure. Uh, like people see it less about the nature of power and power dynamics and more about in, in in order that people would desire. That's just not what we have now sort of thing. So they focus very much on structures and like, you know, whether we have parliament in Canada or Congress in the US and they, they seem very counter to political structures, but rather they're not as much focusing on the kind of thing we just started talking about, which is th- this, this interesting business about what we mean by authority and so forth. A lot of people take anarchism to mean a rejection of this particular set of political right. institutions, right? So you're, I'm opposed to this government. And so that makes me an anarchist. Um, but a lot of people who might oppose a particular government are actually in favor of there being some other kind of government. So I think if we're speaking precisely, we really shouldn't call those people anarchists, even if they proclaim themselves to be, right? Because they all they might mean is, I oppose that government. Whereas, I guess, you know, philosophically speaking, you know, to be an anarchist is to think that none of them would be justified. So if you just oppose that one, but you'd rather have this other one, I don't think that's really anarchism any more than it's atheism if you, you know, reject religion A because you're a believer in religion B, right? So it's like, you know, if you if you if you reject one religion because you think your religion is better, that doesn't make you an atheist. You're simply re- rejecting one for the other. So I think the same is true with anarchism. If you present yourself as an anarchist because you don't like the United States government, but you'd rather have some other kind of government, that's not really anarchism. Right. And in that same vein, you also don't seem to think it's it's really anarchism to think that ever, anyone that has in our current societies, anyone that has anything to do or any connection with the state is sort of, quote, the enemy. You say, you know, the state, quote, this is quoting you, the state is so intertwined in everyday life that it's hard to argue that every single participant is culpably participatory. And I think that's a really good point, as many who call themselves anarchists think that part of it is, as you said, not just simply rejecting the current government, number one, and number two, to use an example you use, thinking that the guy at the water department is our enemy. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point, both philosophically and pragmatically, because um, the, the, the fact that the government has put itself into so many different areas of life, uh, I think, leads people to have sort of the, the wrong sorts of objections, right? Because they're doing things that are not by themselves bad things. Like the like people, you know, someone who, like I, my go-to example here is firefighters, right? The, the profession, the occupation of driving around in the fire trucks and hooking up the hoses and putting out buildings that are on fire, putting out the fires, that's a good thing to do. There's nothing immoral about doing that at all, right? As it happens, most of the places we see the firefighters work for the state government or the local government or whatever. So they're government employees, right? But putting out fires isn't like oppressive statism, right? It's a, it's, it's a good thing to do. I'm glad that people do that. And that, you know, if there's any objection at all, you might say, well, it'd be in some alternate universe, couldn't we imagine 
where there's no government, that there's some sort of mechanism by which firefighters would be able to do their job. So that's all great. And I think that's probably true. Um, but in the current you know, reality of the world, you know, you look at the fire department and you say, well, look, you know, statists, that's really not really paying attention to these sorts of things. But not only is that a philosophical mistake, I think it's a really dangerous mistake, right? And this is why I like to remind people of, you know, Timothy McVeigh, um, an American terrorist who blew up a federal building in Oklahoma City. Um, you know, and the idea is, well, look, it's the federal building, right? So I can just blow the whole thing up. But most of the people working there aren't sort of like actively involved in state oppression, right? They're running the daycare center or processing water bills or whatever. And so to think that everybody is equally culpable in the oppression of the state, um, I think that's not only philosophically mistaken, but it leads to these sort of really terrible consequences where you come to think, well, it's okay to you know, blow up this building or something. And, and that's really, um, I think, morally misguided. Uh, and not that I think McVeigh is any sort of a deep thinking anarchist theorist, right? But to the extent that people who want to take anarchism seriously as a philosophy, I don't think that they, sh I think that they need to separate out, like, what is the essence of the oppressive nature of the state from what does it just so happen to have developed into in ways that are completely morally harmless. Um, now, when I say morally harmless, I don't mean it's perfectly fine that the state does this stuff. I mean that the things that the state's doing may be independently morally acceptable things. I guess the other example there is, you know, teaching, right? Um, most kids in school are being taught by state employees. And there are plenty of classical liberal arguments to the effect that the state ought not to monopolize the education industry. I think those arguments are correct. But the act of teaching, the profession of teaching, isn't some sort of oppressive, horrible thing that nobody should do. And so it would be a terrible mistake to, you know, go kill a bunch of teachers because they're, you know, oppressive functionaries of the state or something. They're doing something. Another way to think about it is they're doing something that would be happening even if we did have anarchism. And on the flip side, we can point to state actors who do do more morally reprehensible and objectionable, objectionable things um, that, you know, some anarchists maybe go, go so far as to say, no, that should be countered. Having said that, though, it turns out that we view that as morally reprehensible and objectionable because it is morally reprehensible and objectionable, regardless of whether they're a state actor or not, because those same actions could be done privately, whether it's choking someone out for selling cigarettes or whatever. And that's the action that's actually the you know, the, the objectionable part. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. That's, that's, you really stated that correctly uh, and very nicely. Uh, you know, if you're going to choke somebody to death for selling untaxed cigarettes, that's just bad period. And it doesn't become more good because you work for the state. If you're putting out fires, that's a good thing, period. And it doesn't become bad because you're working for the state. So the thing itself choking a guy for selling cigarettes or putting out fires is good or bad on its own merits. And it doesn't become good or bad because of it being part of state activity. So what we want to say is state activity is bad in the sense that could this thing, if morally correct, be done elsewise, or it's bad even if it weren't being done by the state. You know, people who, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, 
you're trying to move from point A to point B and somebody says, oh, I'm going to have to lock you up in a cage now. That would be bad, even if it were being done by a non-state actor. So it doesn't become good because it's an ICE agent. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, and, and as you were sort of alluding to earlier, you didn't say in these words, but you're exactly right in the sense this isn't just like a black and white situation. There's a lot of gray area here, too. You know, I think it's important for anarchists to also distinguish between what can in the macro be viewed as the system or the department doing something bad and also all the people who might be contributing to it either indirectly or directly you know directly there's some obvious examples we can point out to like for instance like police abuses but you know as you said you get to a point where when someone's an, an executive assistant to somebody answering phone calls at the at the, I don't know the CIA or something like this is where we get to the point where as you said if someone's just to take an extreme example thinking of blowing up that whole building there's a lot of gray area there that needs to be considered and the other thing and this is a, a point I've made a couple of different occasions. Um, blowing stuff up isn't going to work anyway, right? This is a, a point I like to hit many, many times because one of the associations people have with anarchism is violence, bomb throwing, and so forth. You know, McKinley was assassinated by uh, an anarchist and so on. Um, I think it's important to stress over and over and over again that that's not only not likely to be a morally justifiable strategy, but it's also not likely to be a practically effective strategy. Because as long as people think that the government is justified or that states are legitimate, then no matter how many buildings you blow up or people you assassinate, you're not going to put an end to the activity of states. Um, if you kill President McKinley, somebody else just becomes the president. If you blow up the Capitol building like in uh, that TV show, then they'll just build a new Capitol building. So it, the, the only thing that's going to get rid of the state would be if lots and lots of people started to think that the state's not legitimate, the state's not justified. But blowing stuff up, killing people, isn't going to change people's minds at all. It's just going to say, there, people are going to say, oh, well, so we have to replace the position. We have to replace the person that was in that position before, or we have to put that building back up again or something like that. So it's not only morally bad to go on these bombing sprees. It's also completely ineffective um, practically. The only way you'll ever achieve anarchism is when everybody believes that anarchism is correct not by blowing stuff up or killing people. And I, I like to shift our gears a little bit here into it. Let's call it our mid-range mid -range gear as we slowly head towards uh, the classical liberalism layer I want to bring into the discussion. But a half step towards that is to say, um, even putting aside classical liberalism or, or whatever else specifically, you've noted in your writing that there's an importance to making these kinds of discussions happen like we've been having and anarchist arguments in general. Uh, for instance, you say for those who are anarchists, you note that the importance of simply making the argument, even if people we talk to don't turn into anarchists or subscribe to that label, that, that's important in and of itself for, for many reasons. And one of those you were saying, for instance, is that it, it brings the discussion on the limits of state power to the forefront. And so, so I, I found that very interesting just to read, even before we get to some of this other stuff I want to talk about today, you, you're, you're saying that you shouldn't just think of whether or not we're heading towards our ideal society or whatever else. Just simply making these arguments and having these discussions, uh, especially if you're an anarchist, is, is important, full stop. I think that's right. I, I think it's it's a sort of a benchmark. Maybe, maybe that's one way to think about it is um, putting the burden of proof on the other person. Why do you think it's important that the government does X. And the question, why do you think it's important that the government do X, isn't a question about whether X is important 
right? It's a question about whether you think it's important that the government do this thing X. So again, with firefighting, if I say, why do you think it's important that the government run fire departments? I'm not questioning the necessity of firefighting. I'm questioning the mechanism by which firefighting comes into being. If I say, why do you think it's important that the government runs the schools? I'm not saying that there's anything questionable about education. I'm an educator myself. I think it's important. The question is, why do you think it's important that the government be the mechanism by which schooling is provided? And by shifting the burden of proof there a little bit, um, and you know, the people have answers to these questions of varying degrees of coherence, but even making them come up with those answers is a way of foregrounding you know, what it is that might be objectionable about the state. And so even if you don't convince this person that you're talking to, yeah, you're right, the government shouldn't do anything. You've at least got into the conversation, the idea that there's at least something to consider here. Um, have you even thought about some alternative mechanism? And of course, a lot of the things that we assume couldn't possibly take place without government activity are things that took place for centuries without government activity. It's not like nobody had the fires in their house put out or um, or got an education for their children um, before these sorts of things. And of course, the irony is that if you wanted to make a list of things that couldn't possibly happen without governments doing them, most of the things on that list are really terrible things that nobody actually wants to defend anyway, like slavery or war or torture and you know, pull, you know, su suppression of dissident opinion. Yeah, those, those things can't happen without the government, but no one actually wants to actively defend all those things. But if you say, well, you know, firefighters and daycare centers and, and school teachers, like, yeah, that stuff's all great. I love all those people. Right. I just wish they had a different employer. And to follow up on this, uh, and I think we're kind of touching on it, but not in these words so much. But you've said also in your writing, too, that in this way, the anarchist discussion and the the points the anarchist makes uh, can be and should be in some ways both aspirational and incremental. Can you get into that a bit for me? Aspirational is what I was just talking about, right? In other words, establishing a benchmark for reducing the scope of government. So even if we, I'm not expecting realistically anarchism in my lifetime, but people are out there fighting to end police abuse or to increase school choice or things of that nature, right? So the, the anarchist position being at some sort of end point of a spectrum, um, it, it gives you some sort of a benchmark for talking about um, reducing the total amount of state scope. Um, so, it, it, and by incremental, that's, I, I guess, what I mean. It doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? We either have exactly the states that we live in today or jump right ahead into anarchism. It's fine if we increase incrementally the total amount of human freedom in the world, right, or reduce incrementally the total amount of oppression in the world, that's good, right? So it's going in a good direction. But to have a direction, there has to be some sort of a signpost or whatever. I'm going to run out of metaphors. You need some sort of a signpost to be even to be able to say, yeah, that's moving in the right direction. But, you know, as long as we move towards reduced oppression or increased human freedom, that's great. And so anarchism can serve this purpose of being that, uh, you know, that, that, that signpost, that thing that you're working towards, even if you don't actually ever get there. And I don't have a, um, a sort of uh, 
naive view that, um, you know, all of a sudden I'll, I'll wake up one day and everybody's, you know, saying, yes, we should dismantle all apparatuses of government power and move to a completely uh, anarchist world. That's ridiculous. I don't expect that at all. But I think that making the argument about why that's ultimately the, the right way to go gives people a direction, right? So then when you say, well, why should we abolish qualified immunity to uh, to help with police reform? Right. Or why should we work for school choice and whatever, things like that? Why should we relax uh, immigration restrictions and allow greater freedom of movement across borders? Well, the reason is, you know, this lodestar of uh, not having any states at all, not having any political oppression at all. You know, most people will agree with you if you say, I think political oppression is bad, right? Most people will agree to that. Okay, so if you agree with me that that's bad, shouldn't we get rid of it? And so, you know, that's where the conversation gets weird because they'll end up saying, well, we'll have to have some of it, right? Because, and then there's some reason that they have why there still has to be some kind of oppression. So it's nice to be that one guy in the corner saying, well, actually, we don't have to have to have any, um, but I'll be content if you'll agree with me that we should, you know, chip away at it as much as possible. And actually, you, you mentioned, you know, you're, you're not you're saying you don't you don't have this naivete where you think that, OK, everybody's going to wake up one day and, and believe in, in this anarchist principles. But one thing I like is you, you say exactly that in some of your writing, but then you carry the point forward. And I really do like this point. You basically say, let's say let's just assume for a second tomorrow that, you know, m- the majority of the people wake up and agree with everything we're saying here about anarchism. And they just say, yep, I'm an anarchist. Even if that were to happen, that doesn't take care overnight of the problem of political authority and the structures we have today. So the anarchist question is still relevant, even if most people agree with us. It might be a little bit too early, but we're, because I'm going to shift gears a little more, uh, a little more radically after this. Um, so let's take our break right now. So everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ian Scoble today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Alessandro Fiorello, Amy Willis, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ian Scoble today. So, Ian, the first half of our conversation, we covered some general principles of anarchism, why we think the anarchist discussion is important, and I, and I thought that was really great. Now I'd like to bring in a different layer of our discussion. So why do you think people thinking of themselves um, more or less, and labels are complicated, but let's just say they're calling themselves traditional or classical liberals. Why do you think these sorts of folks should think seriously about anarchism? Like what if it's not on their radar or it's even just a little bit on their radar, let's say, why should it be more? In my in my book, Deleting the State, I, I did look at people who are self-identified libertarians, but who reject anarchism um, to try to look at because these are books that I would read. And I'm like 99 percent agreeing with them and, and loving the arguments for why we have more freedom and whatever. But then they won't you know, go the extra mile to. Uh, 
have no government whatsoever. And in certain cases, like Robert Nozick's book, he actually makes it an important point um, that before I go into explaining why we should have only a minimal state, let me take seriously the anarchist argument and show why we shouldn't have anarchism. So, you know, there's a tradition in um, that kind of libertarian thinking where uh, even if you're going to go for a very extreme you know, libertarian minimalism, you're still going to reject the anarchist position. Uh, Tibor McCann had an argument to that effect as well. And so one of the things I was interested in doing was looking not at in general, why do people not like anarchism, but specifically how come more libertarians don't like anarchism? Um, and the, what I found out, what, what it seemed to me when I was investigating this was that all of what they all seemed to have in common um, was some kind of a, a, a worry or, or a concern about the possibility of social order without um, some kind of authority uh, to back it up, which of course is familiar to students of political philosophy as essentially Hobbes's argument, right? Hobbes's whole argument is if there isn't some you know, sovereign power to keep everybody in line, then we're not going to be able to uh, trust each other enough to be able to have basic peace and commerce. Um, I mean, for Hobbes, it's pretty extreme. We'd literally all die if we didn't have a sovereign with absolute power, right? Um, but what's interesting is uh, even though these people are, are, have backed away from Hobbesian absolute monarchy, they still, somewhere in the back of their minds is this worry, right, that, um, well, there has to be some kind of baseline authority because otherwise, and then some Hobbesian verbiage comes out about how we'd be at war with each other all the time. And so, so when, I've, when it occurred to me that the, the primary source of libertarian anti-anarchism was this Hobbesian concern lurking in the back of their minds. Um, uh, then I thought, well, isn't there some sort of response to this, right? And because it's a practical concern, right? Because you could say, yes, I agree that the amount of state coercion should be as little as possible, but as little as possible means, you know, three, not zero. So my question is, well, why do you think it's three and not zero? And is there some argument to the effect that it really is zero and doesn't have to be three? Um, and it turns out that there is, right? Um, but the the sort of uh, answer to that concern isn't in philosophy itself, but I, I found it in other social sciences and in history, right? Um, some people think that uh, Hobbes's argument um, can be modeled as a sort of prisoner's dilemma, uh, where what we see is that uh, actors rationally maximizing their self-interest would be better off if they could cooperate with each other, but um, because they don't have sufficient trust or knowledge of the other player, end up defecting or, or betraying the other one, but then the other one faces the same incentive set. So they both end up worse off than they would be if they could get along. Um, well, that's the sort of thing that you could actually uh, test for. And so um, 
they did a computer tournament, a simulation tournament, where they played zillions of games of Prisoner's Dilemma with different sorts of parameters. Um, and it turned out that um, the, the best strategy, the most uh, robust strategy um, was to try to cooperate um, with the other players, to foster cooperation, although to also be responsive if you're betrayed to retaliate, but then after the retaliation to return to um, an attempt to foster cooperation. So in a purely sort of game theory, computer tournament thing, it, there's some reason to disbelieve that analysis, that we will end up all at each other's throats, right? There's some evidence that uh, we would do this. But of course, that's just a computer game and people question how much the prisoner's dilemma really models real life and whatever. But of course, if we just look at the history of the evolution of law, we see all sorts of examples um, that are obviously real world examples uh, where people do work out uh, ways to um, foster cooperation, um, reward, reward it as opposed to punishing uh, non-cooperative activity. And so, you know, looking at, um, you know, the history of the evolution of law and some, uh, you know, economic work on spontaneous order theory, uh, people like Hayek, for example, uh, came into the work here. Um, you know, the, the idea that some orders evolve naturally, right? So political order is top down, it's imposed by some authority figure. Um, but, you know, people who, um, you know, have read um, Hayek, for example, are familiar with this idea of, a, of an evolved order or a spontaneous order. Um, and so, you know, language is an example, right? There's an orderliness to the grammar of language, but it's the product of um, human activity without being the product of human design, right? So is there anything in the social order that's like that, that might indicate uh, the possibility of cooperation without imposed coercive authority? And looks like the answer is yes. Um, and so, and it's, it's the modality here that's interesting to me. If it's even possible that we can evolve social systems that reward cooperation and thereby have uh, moral and commercial relations without imposed coercive authority, if that's even possible, that's an argument against the sort of underlying Hobbesianism of statists. Um, you know, the, the idea that there has to be some kind of imposed coercive authority because otherwise cooperation is just not possible. If, if the argument is just not possible, then all you have to show to rebut that is it is possible. And so does it always work out exactly perfectly? No, but is it possible? Yes, if it's possible, um, that undercuts uh, the Hobbesian argument. Um, for sovereignty. Absolutely. And just to bring us back to like another point about the folks that um, let's call them the, the, the libertarian or the minimal state classical liberal or whatever. Um, you know, it, it's interesting and, and you find it very interesting as well. I can tell through your writing that when we get back to this aspect of a, a central authority or political authority or coercion, you know, of course, the anarchists will say that the state is coercive and therefore illegitimate. And it's not as if then we turn around and talk to other libertarians who uh, do think we should have a state and they say, you know, the, the, the state is not coercive and great. We just need it minimized. It's often that, yes, the state is coercive. Coercive, but it's it's again a rather this this old trope this idea of the necessary evil. They're not saying it's a necessary good. Right, right. So that's the thing, right? If you think that the state is this positive good, right? So for example, um, a, a Marxist would have to do this, or um, a sort of theocrat 
uh, you know, th theocratic position has political authority being some sort of positive good, right? But if, you're, if your argument is that it's a necessary evil, then I don't have to convince you that it's evil. I just have to convince you that it's not necessary. And I guess, like, of course, this would be a whole episode unto itself and we wouldn't have time to cover it. But a lot of this Hobbesian fear, a lot of the Hobbesian concern that you were talking about, um, yes, like there's a lot of like, you know, discussion about uh, whether or not such and such order could emerge without a political and central authority and so on and so forth. But it seems to me that sometimes there is um, when you dig deeper, when you're talking to anarchists or non-anarchists, it's not so much also about orders and and uh, what can be achieved with or without that um, with or without that central political authority. There often seems to be not major, but at least at the very least, often minor differences between certain assumptions about like human nature or like as you were sort of alluding to before, like base level human behavior. I mean, like in the anarchist tradition. You know, you get someone like Peter Kropotkin who's talking about, you know, mutual aid and cooperation is a natural tendency of human beings. Oftentimes, if you dig deeper a little further with some of the folks who uh, who, who think a state is still necessary, they might not actually even go so far as to say that. It, you know, once you get off discussions about whether or not we can have the fire department without, you know, a state or not, it's often just what people believe at the base level, humans will do to each other left unsupervised. Yeah. And so, you know, Smith, for example, thinks that we have a natural propensity not only to want to trade with each other, but also to feel sympathetic relations for each other. And but here's the thing. If it depends on a theory of how are people going to behave, that's the sort of thing that's empirical. Right. And so we can look at, um, you know, historical examples or social science stuff about how people do behave rather than limit ourselves to armchair speculation. Well, I think human nature is right. That would be kind of hard to know if you're just sitting in the armchair, right? But this is where the empirical can be of value to us, right? So I, I'm fond, for example, of that anecdote from World War One where they had this, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the firing back and forth uh, between the trenches. Um, now, of course, the war itself was orchestrated by, you know, the aristocrats and generals, but the people in the trenches, right, they didn't necessarily have the same agenda set um, as the, the aristocrats and generals who got them into this mess in the first place. And so they evolved this sort of live and let live uh, approach to when they're going to fire and when they're not going to fire. And, you know, once in a while, you know, generals would come and visit and be sort of annoyed uh, that the that the ground level trench fighting troops had adopted this more live and let live sort of uh, thing. I think that's an instructive example. It shows something about the difference in incentives faced by the trench fighting ground troops versus what the aristocrats and the generals might want to accomplish. And then you know, the other, this episode culminates with this, you know, famous story of this Christmas truce, whatever, right. where they, they literally came out and started hanging out with each other, right? And so I think that's, a, a, that anecdote or that set of anecdotes is more useful than me just sitting in my chair saying, well, I think that human nature consistent, right? I don't have to do that, right? It's more useful to look at how have people behaved in actual situations. Another example that I like is um, the, the evolution of the international merchant law in the Middle Ages, um, you know, because these, you know, Silk Route travelers or whatever, they're crossing like 18 different national borders. And so they can't rely on any one of these governments to protect their international merchant agreements. So 
you might think that that would mean that, I guess, well, I guess international commerce isn't possible then. Right. But of course, it is possible. They've been doing it since the 13th century, earlier than that even. Right. But by the time you get to the 13th century, they've actually worked out what looks like a set of legal principles, even though there's no government right, in the, in the political sense to enforce uh, that international merchant law. So you know, that's a great example. There's not a single government that captures all 18 of those borders, but the merchants working along those routes were bound by this uh, legal code that was not the product of you know, coercive imposition by the king or the emperor, but rather a, a sort of um, bottom-up evolved set of norms uh, that they then did regard as binding uh, and, and you know, could they could use these to do what we expect law to do, regulate my behavior and give me stable expectations as to the behavior of others. Right, ex- exactly. And to drill into that a little further, too, I think, at, at least in my experience, too, talking with, with many classical liberals is that, you know, um, especially when, when they're talking about, like, what the function of a minimal state could do, you know, they talk about rule of law, law courts, contract enforcement, so on and so forth. I think sometimes, at least in my opinion, you tell me if, if, if in your mind it's different, but at least to me, I think sometimes there is this assumption that the anarchist doesn't want some of that functionality, that that actual, that those things take care of. It's just, again, as you were saying at the beginning of our chat how that's being delivered like the anarchist is often very very much into rules like you know david friedman in his writing likes to point out the discipline of constant dealings in a contract and like how that's a social force that sort of uh, disciplines us you know if, if you you know are honest for a thousand transactions and you know screw someone over for the thousand and one then you're probably not going to get business anymore and so on and so forth and that's like a social rule that emerges it's not as if anarchists don't want those social rules or social norms well that's exactly right and i think that's how you can get some traction on you know the argument from the, the so-called polycentric law theorists, right? The, the idea there is that um, we can have this idea of rule of law or courts or you know some sort of regularized dispute resolution that doesn't depend on imposed coercive political authority um, because people have an interest in systems of dispute resolution existing. And again, that's not armchair speculation on my part. That's what we see when we look at uh, you know, the history of these evolved norms in Iceland, in Ireland, in the American Western frontier prior to 1885, in the English common law, all of these, you know, the international merchant communities and so forth. These are all examples where we don't have to speculate about, but can observe people having an interest in there being some sort of dispute resolution process as opposed to settling disputes with violence. Um, So that's something that people are going to want to do and want to have. And again, when you say, oh, well, I'm I'm an anarchist, people are like, oh, so you think that there shouldn't be laws? Actually, no, that doesn't follow at all, right? That's that's another non sequitur. And this is actually one of the, this is like deep secrets of the anarchist position, of course, is that a lot of the stuff um, you're still going to have any people like, oh, well, it's, you know, speed limits on the highways. But you know what? If we lived in anarcho-topia, right, somebody would own, there'd be some private owner for those roads. I would imagine that whoever that person is would set use rules for that road. So guess what? You're still going to have speed limits on those roads. So it's not like uh, it's like 15-year-old's version of anarchism where I can just do whatever I want all the time. 
that's actually not what's going on, right? It's, it's not the stay, stay out of my, my room mom version of anarchism. Exactly. If we woke up tomorrow in some anarchist f- fantasy world, there'd still be something like driver's licenses and speed limits because the owners of those roads would insist upon that. There'd still be stuff like police and courts because the history of our societies all show that people want to have, you know, enforcement mechanisms for their rights claims or processes for dispute resolution. These are all things that we we know, again, empirically, not from my speculation, that we know people want and societies do develop around those sorts of things. So, you know, you, you're not going to get rid of those annoying speed limits uh, just because you embrace anarchism. You're still going to have to drive a particular speed unless it's your road, right? But as someone else owns that road, you're going to have to drive the speed they tell you to drive at. It just so happens that right now that's the government. But if you think that there wouldn't be any use rules, that's that's fantastical. Right, exactly. And, and, and to tie up like a lot of this discussion about, you know, the quote tension potentially between, um, you know, the minimal state like uh, libertarian or classical liberal and the anarchist, it's, it's clear from your writing that you, you think that it's actually the most unproductive thing to do to basically have these two, I guess, ends of the table at the same table sort of throw their hands up and say, well, you know, we've gone as far as we can go. You're an anarchist. I'm not. Call it a day. You note in your book and another writing that these are actually positions that have a lot more productive potential between them, most importantly, because as, as I think kind of as we were discussing, there's a lot of, um, you know, a common ground in terms of what functionality and what kinds of things and kinds of ways um, people feel that, you know, um, would be good for a society to be framed by. So, so I think that that's why this discussion is very interesting is because, again, as I was saying, you think that it's, it shouldn't be done, that people just say, well, those are the anarchists over there. It's, there's actually a lot more to be had in terms of these sorts of discussions and linking these two minarchist and anarchist camps, if you will. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that you know another angle to include in those conversations is anytime somebody responds by saying that it's important that the government do thing X, even if I agree that the government shouldn't do thing Y. Whatever it is that you think is going to be better off if the government does it, it's important to be aware that you know political institutions get captured by mechanisms that favor certain groups who receive concentrated benefits at the expense of the majority who uh, over whom the costs are, are dispersed. And you know, so it's like, if you think that the because I guess one argument would be well, the government has to do X or we would never have X. That's almost always wrong, except for really bad things like war and surveillance and torture. The other argument is, well, it's better if government does X because then it's more fair or whatever. That's an argument that's not as um, morally weird. But I think typically when people make that argument, they're overlooking the objection about the reality of how political institutions get captured, of the self-interest of the political actors. Um, you know, Why is it that the teachers union um, isn't leading the charge against police union excesses? Because teachers unions enjoy a lot of the same sorts of uh, benefit of the doubt in their world that police unions give to police. And so you might think, well, police unions are on the right and teachers unions are on the left, but the union leaderships of both of them have very similar interests and agendas in terms of how to protect my membership. Exactly. Right. 
And so you get a lot of very similar um, uh, mechanisms um, that both teachers and police enjoy in, you know, in different realms, of course, but, but similar sorts of institutional mechanisms. So, you know, against the argument that, you know, the, the government, it's better if the government does X because it's nicer or more fair or whatever, that's usually an argument that overlooks some of these uh, uh, concerns about the capture of those institutions by particular interests or, or the self-interest of the people that are involved in those sorts of things. And that's a different kind of argument from the argument X wouldn't even exist if we didn't have the state, um, which I, I, again, I think that's always false except for horrible things that nobody wants to defend anyway. Right. Yeah. And I really like your example of the unions, actually, because you're right with this whole like, you know, left and right, you know, version or idea or discussion about what, what union aligns with what ultimately you're exactly correct, right? Is that that's, that's a discussion ultimately of like political alliances in the most realist sense. Like y- your point is that the anarchist looks at that and looks at what, what they do and function as as institutions and how they, they use their power or privilege or whatever to do such and such a thing. And in many cases, there's a lot of overlap between, you know, who'd think it a police union and a teacher's union, especially in regards to, you know, what kind of services that they enforce and, you know, protecting their own people and so on and so forth. So I think that was a really good example. Thanks. I mean, I I do think that, I mean, my training's in philosophy and I identify as a philosopher, but I think that if you're doing political philosophy, um, you really need to pay attention you know, there's places in the argument where you really need to pay attention to, you know, what do we know empirically from history, from other social sciences, from economics, um, because that's going to inform what you're going to say. So, so, well, look, if we had a state-run activity like X, it would be perfect because, but meanwhile, there's thousands of scholarly papers from some other discipline outside of philosophy, which shows you why it's not going to work that way. So I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you just put on blinders. No, oh, I'm not going to read any of those papers because those are written by economists or political scientists. That can't be worth my time. That's ridiculous. Of course, those are relevant to what you're trying to say. Even if you're thinking primarily in philosophical terms, there's some value to the empirical findings that you're going to get from from your cousins over in social sciences. And I have one final question and discussion point before we head to our our formal wrap up. And I I wanted to end with this specifically uh, because it's an interesting one. So like, you know, after all, if there are objections to anarchism or anarchist thinking and and principles, um, even if we get past that coercion part of the conversation and we can get people to agree with us on such and such a point, there's ultimately sort of this one last card that people pull out, which is basically the inevitability of the state, regardless of what we believe. So um, I'm just going to read a quote. It's from you in one of your essays. And to that you say, is the state inevitable? I would argue that it is a historical contingency that states developed the way they did. But the more important question is whether they can be justified given our current understanding. If it turns out that the answer is they cannot, then all that remains is to erode the conceptual legitimacy that the state has acquired. And I find that very interesting because ultimately what you're what you're one of the things you're saying in that is that people talk about the inevitability of the state because they wake up in the morning and the state's there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's what we're used to. It, it's how we interpret the world. Um you know, people who live in really very oppressive states are constantly aware of their oppression, but people who live in relatively more free states are aware that they don't live in the first set of states. And so everybody's 
constantly bombarded by these sorts of things. You go out for a drive and, you know, it's the government that's put up all those road signs. So you really, it's, it's part of the air you breathe. And so, of course, we all just think of it that way. Um, but I imagine the same was true you know, back in the days of absolute monarchy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's no reason why we have to have absolute monarchy just because, you know, the last four generations of my family, we've grown up under absolute monarchy. That's not a good reason to keep it around, right? Once you figure out, yeah, absolute monarchy is a terrible idea for a system of government, right? Then you have some kind of a revolution and put up a new kind of government. Um, you know, the, uh, the idea that if we didn't have the government to do X, we would never be able to do X. Again, a little bit of history goes a long way. That's almost always wrong. Um, and I, th I think it's, but this is why I always like to come back to this idea, you know, don't blow stuff up, don't go killing people, but, you know, read some books, <laughs> engage, engage with some political philosophy, learn some history, uh, learn some economics. Um, if, if it's ever going to change, it's going to be through things like that. And it also, too, just to make a very, you know, plain anarchist point myself is that, I mean, a lot of the history and a lot of the information we're exposed to is either through public school systems or, or the government itself creating headlines. So, I mean, it's in their vested interest to take uh, credit for almost everything that happened post-World War II, at least in terms of all the great stuff that happened in the world. So this is constantly embedded into people's minds, right, right from, you know, uh, cr cradle to grave, if you will. No, that's exactly right. And that's an interesting trick that they used since forever, right? Every ancient king justifies their own authority by taking credit for whatever good things happen under their reign, right? Um, so, you know, if you if you go, you know, that's not even a product of modern liberal states. That's, you know, that's a trick that they've used since literally forever. And, and it's about that time for us to head to, to our formal wrap up. So Ian, in every episode, I want to make sure that, that the guest ultimately has the last word and gets to tie off our conversation. So, so let me say, we've, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on anarchism and then also if it's relevant to classical liberalism? If, in other words, if you wanted someone to remember one or two or just a couple or a few things about everything we've talked about today, what would those takeaways be? One thing is that anarchism shouldn't be associated with chaos or disorder or violence, um, that it's a particular way of thinking about the nature and justification of government authority. Um, and that it's not sort of immediately dismissible as insane. Um, that it's uh, it's a way of extending a set of conversations, um, philosophically speaking, about rights and the nature of the individual, but also empirically speaking about um, you know the evolution of law and and what economics tells us about human interactions, um, and that it's at least worth taking seriously. Uh, you know, you know, if you're interested in problems of government and authority, um, then it's worth looking into further. Ian Scoble, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. 
check us out on Patreon, and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.